thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist. I'm Chris Smith and I'm joined by the Naked Scientist team to wish you season's greetings and to invite you to spend the next hour with us as we explore the science of Christmas. As you can hear, we're joined at our Christmas party by a choir. They're the Templar Scholars and they'll be with us throughout the programme. Coming up, we'll be looking at why crackers are or aren't all that funny, the chemistry of Christmas and what makes the ultimate roast dinner. Christmas caroling is one of the traditions that really has stood the test of time, but why is that? It could be that singing, and in particular choral singing, has some effects that other group activities just don't. Jude Breton teaches the science of singing at the University of York and also with us are the Templar scholars and their conductor Tori Longdon and also biochemist Mark Lorch. We'll come to Mark shortly. Jude, first of all, tell us how do we actually produce sound when we want to sing or speak? We can think about the voice in three main parts. You need a power source, a sound source and then some sort of modifier, some resonator. The power source for singers is the lungs and it's air from the lungs. So we need to think about our breathing. We need to concentrate on breathing, breathing deeply, breathing regularly and controlling that breath. That's the fundamental to good singing. The sound source is in the voice box, so the larynx in the neck. And it's actually a pair of tiny vocal folds. Some people call them the vocal cords. And they're about the size of your thumbnail. And those vocal folds, they vibrate as you push air up through the trachea the vocal folds vibrate and There's that's one the on fundamental. Each side, one there? on each side. And they absolutely. sort of close, they meet in the middle and they can move apart and move together. They do. And they do that very, very rapidly. So if one of our singers were to sing, let's say, a middle C, a middle C on the piano, that's around 260 hertz. That's 260 vibrations per second. So that means my vocal cords are opening and closing 260 times a second. Absolutely. And that is interrupting the flow of air coming out of my trachea, the, the windpipe. Absolutely right. 260 times a second. Yeah. So what does that then do to the sound as it comes up my throat then? That makes actually just a very simple buzzing sound. So I've got here an electrolarynx, and this is a device you would need to use if you had to have your larynx removed, and it just makes a buzzing sound. Sounds rather rude. but <laughs> It does. And it's, it's literally the size of a stick of dynamite, isn't it? It is. It's a, little, it's a little cylinder. It is. And that buzzing sound, that rude buzzing sound, that's the sound we would hear if we were to get our singers and chop their heads off. That's the sound we would hear just directly above the vocal folds. But you've got the Templar Scholars here, and they're wearing uh, a fashion accessory I haven't seen for about 20 years. They're all wired up, actually. I've never seen a choir wearing electrical are, apparatus I'm, resembling I'm chokers. What is this? They've, they've allowed me to put electrodes on their necks. 
Is do that you... so we can strangle them if they don't sing well? <laughs> yeah, we could uh, probably <laughs> do that. Um, so the electrodes we've got there, there is a current going from one electrode to the other. So they've got a pair of electrodes, one on each side of the larynx. Yes, yeah, a little um, belt-like choker little belt thing. Like and choker. it's got these two discs. They're about two pence piece size, aren't they? Sticking Absolutely. either side of their And neck. it's a- attached with Velcro at the back. So you can take them off if you begin to feel too uncomfortable. But what it does allow us to do is to find out more about the actual vocal fold vibration itself. So, Chris, if we ask the choir to sing one verse of A Christmas Carol, we'll have a little listen later to just their vocal folds. Very much enjoyed the singing. What did we capture electrically from their larynx? So electrically, we've just captured the raw signal of the vocal folds moving, and we should be able to listen to that now. actually going on there what are we hearing so we're literally just hearing how the vocal folds vibrate so that's the sound source that you put into the vocal tract and then you need the vocal tract to transform that sound into words and into different shapes of notes that sound obviously isn't the sound that comes out of my mouth so how do those puffs of air change as they come up and turn into a a note and b in my case now speech the note itself is regulated by the vibration of the vocal folds. So we can tension and detension the vocal folds. So if they're under more tension, if they're thinner and longer, then they'll make a higher note. Is that because they vibrate, they move together and apart more quickly? Absolutely. So thinking about that middle C again, that was about 260 times per second. Um, if you were to sing an octave above that, then that would be 520 times per second. And then another octave above, you're going... 1,040 times per second. Are you aware of your vocal cords bouncing backwards and forwards um, up to 500 times a second, Victoria? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? Tell us a bit about your singing uh, experience. And, I mean, d- does this sort of just happen naturally to you? Or have you actually had to have training in actually being aware of what's going on in your neck as you're producing lots of beautiful sound? Well, if you imagine going into a primary school playground and seeing little kids running around, the sound that they are producing is enormously loud, enormously free sound, which would challenge any operatic tenor in the best London circuits. But somehow, over our lives, as we get more stressed and more worried, all of these things shut down, we try and make ourselves sound better, 
And so sometimes singing teaching is just a case of getting back to what's natural. And relaxing a bit. So how do I make sounds into speech then? The third part of the voice I was talking about, after the sound source, which is at the vocal folds, is a resonator, a modifier. And that's everything above the vocal folds. The throat, the back of the mouth, the tongue, the lips, the teeth. And that modifies the sound into, for example, different vowels. So I have here, Chris, um, it's a very strange-looking object, but it's actually... A it looks like three... something out of Alien, actually. <laughs> it does a little, doesn't it? It's actually a 3D-printed vocal tract of a particular singer singing a particular vowel. So in other words, you've taken, what, a scan of the innards of somebody... Indeed. ...and extracted the bit that corresponds to the windpipe, vocal folds, in other words, vocal cords, the back of the throat, and out to the mouth, because it, it does end in a mouth, Yeah, and see. we've, got, we've got, even got some lips on this model here. So absolutely right, we did that. We had a singer in the MRI scanner, and they sang a particular vowel. Now, this vowel I brought for you today is an R vowel, and what I can do is I can attach this to the buzz of the electrolarynx we heard earlier. So, so you're just going to put some vibrations into it? Absolutely. And, and this tube is see. going to resonate certain right. bits of the spectrum and dampen other bits, and it should turn it into an R vowel. So here's the buzz again. Just a normal buzz. And here's the R vowel. And if we could change the shape of that, and we do it with our tongue, presumably... Mm -hmm. So by moving our mouths around, moving our tongue and moving our lips around, we can make different vowel sounds. We can obviously make different consonants as well. So I can demonstrate the different vowel sounds we can make. Here's a very strange-looking object, but it's actually a duck call. And again, that's just a buzzing noise. And then attached to it is a bit of hosepipe. And I should be able to make an E and then an R. Oh, so squeezing the, the tube and changing the shape. Squeezing the tube and changing the shape. Right. So if I squeeze the end of the tube, I should get an E vowel, because that's what your mouth is doing when you make an E vowel, mm. is squeezing the yeah, end so of the tube. Yes, because you're bringing your teeth together, tongue towards Absolutely, your teeth. Absolutely, towards the mouth. Yeah. And if I squeeze the back of the tube, then we should get an R vowel, because that's what your mouth does when you do an R vowel. So I've been practicing this. I hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad I've got a tongue, which makes life <laughs> a lot easier than actually doing that. But so, so Tori has a high voice and sings in a, a much higher set of notes than I do, and presumably you do. Is that just because I'm a different shape in terms of my larynx and my mouth to her and you? So female vocal folds are generally shorter than male vocal folds, so they make a higher sounding pitch. And Tori, uh, the other benefits of singing, of course, it isn't just about uh, making the audience enjoy it. It's enjoyable for the people who do it as well. Absolutely. When you're singing, as you said earlier, an awful lot of learning how to sing is getting in touch with your breath system. Um, and that might sound similar to some of you who've maybe had hypnotherapy or other stress and relaxation techniques in the past. You are encouraged to get in touch with your breath. So in fact, you know, what singers are doing is, is finding a way to ground themselves, calm themselves down. Singing can be enormously beneficial for you from a, a very physical point of view. York University's Jude Breton and the Templar Scholars Tori Longdon. Thank you both very much. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Twelve long equations, eleven spaceships launching, ten Stephen Hawkins, nine Stegosaurus, eight quarks are quarking, seven lasers beaming, six supernovas, DNA, four
microscopes, three test tubes, two chromosomes, and a partridge in a petri dish. How many chemicals do you think your body interacts with at Christmas? The answer is loads. They're everywhere. In the Christmas jumpers you're wearing, the wrapping paper you've ripped to shreds, and even in the preservative your Christmas tree's been sprayed with that stops the needles falling off. Mark Lorch is a biochemist from the University of Hull, and he's here to unwrap the chemistry of Christmas for us. Hello, Mark. Hello. We mentioned that you were joining us earlier, and you've been vigorously peeling an orange, but I not have. for personal consumption, I hope. Yeah, this Not is... in the chemistry laboratory. No, of course not. The thing about orange peel, and one of the reasons why it smells so nice, is there's a chemical in, the, in this peel called limonene. And limonene is incredibly flammable. So flammable, in fact, that you can turn a bit of orange peel into a flamethrower. So it's Safe just... for the Christmas table? Yeah, uh, if you've got candles around, it's... Uh, <laughs> Just follow normal So we have one here. of my beautiful crystal candlesticks here, mm -hmm. and there is a candle sticking out the top of it, and you have peeled the peel off of a very large orange, and you bent the peel over, so you're just sort of just going to squeeze the peel onto the candle flame. Exactly. You can watch this. Whoa! Isn't that That fabulous? was about a foot high. That was a really good jet of flame there. Did I is that, is that a trick gun? stunt orange, or is that no, real? No, this is, is just a real? normal naval orange. Oh, shall I get another bit off? But there was an absolutely again. huge fireball that came off, like a fruit fireball came yeah. off of this orange. And, and it was a bright, whitey yellow flame. Burned very fast. Yeah. Why is this happening? What's coming out of the peel? So the stuff in the peel is this chemical called, it's an oil called limony. And it's what smells so lovely when you squeeze an orange or a lemon, in fact, or any citrus fruit. And as I said, it's extremely flammable, so you can get this nice jet of What's flame. What's it doing in the orange? Um, I believe it has insecticidal qualities, actually. As well as taste and As well as it smelling and tasting really nice. And, you know, that's part of the reason why we, we put rind and things into cakes, etc., to get that lovely Because people aroma. used to dangle oranges, well, in various places, on Christmas trees. They used to put them in their wardrobes to ward off insects, didn't they? Because... Um, I believe it, it so. repels moths very yeah. well, I'm told. And so, so I believe. And, and so as you squeeze the, the peel, you're literally putting jets of this stuff into the flame and off it goes. Exactly. And actually, there's another interesting thing about the limonene in that it's the same compound in lemons and oranges, but they smell different. How does the, something that's essentially the same smell different? Well, it's because in the orange and the lemons, the compounds are mirror images of each other. Our body interacts with different mirror images of compounds in different ways. And so what you're saying is you've got smell. a molecule that's like a left-hand version and a molecule that's like a right-hand version. Exactly. Because you have two different gloves, one for each hand. They're yeah. both hands. They both look the same. Both got five digits, but and they're, they're mirror images. Exactly. And, they're and the molecules joint. smell different because they bind differently in our exactly. noses. Exactly. So they bind to different proteins in, in our noses and generate a different sensation for us. And that happens actually in a lot of other things that we might come across at Christmas as well. Caraway, for example, is a mirror image of the compound that gives the taste of spearmint. So spearmint and caraway, same compounds. Yeah, you wouldn't want to muddle them up in your loaf. You though, wouldn't, would you? no, no. But actually, now you mention it, you, sometimes you can, if you taste caraway, you can almost get a vague hint of spearmint in there as well, if you, if you think about it. Well, there you go. Fireballs yeah. for your Christmas table. What about making some baubles for my tree, though? Right. Traditionally, Christmas baubles and mirrors, for example, they were silvered. The silvering reaction is actually really quite a simple bit of chemistry. 
and I'm going to try and make now here at the table a Christmas bauble out of something you wouldn't normally hang on a Christmas tree, although they do hang on mine, um, round bottom flasks. Beautiful right. piece of laboratory glassware. It do you is. really hang those on your I really, Christmas tree? I've, I've, I, really have, I really have one of these, with, uh, a round bottom flask that I've uh, silvered, and they, yeah, it does hang okay, on Okay, so we're going to make the silver on the outside or the inside? On the inside, so we're going right. to put the silver okay. on the inside of the bauble. I'm going to start off with a silver nitrate. So this is a colourless liquid. Now, this is a totally colourless liquid, but there's silver in there. Now, the next thing I have to add, and this bit's a bit stinky, I've got to add some ammonia. This also is a colourless liquid. Colourless liquid, and it's squirting smelly. that into... And it all goes, it goes Ooh, brown. Okay. A, a, it smells absolutely disgusting. It does. Like, now, like, um, like we've gone into a gentleman's toilet. Solution's gone brown. That's silver oxide, and that doesn't dissolve in this solution, so it goes to lose it. As I add more ammonia, it then goes clear again. Yeah, right. so we started off with a clear solution. You added the ammonia and it went a dark colour. Yeah. Now it's gone back to clear. Right. So why has that gone clear? That's because we've now got something called diamine silver that dissolves in this. Right. Now what I've got to add is a little bit of potassium hydroxide. And this makes it alkali. And it goes dark again. That's ready now for, for the final step, which is just to add some sugar. So actually this is dextrose I'm using here. Now it goes dark slowly. You can see it's gone a sort of brown colour. Mm. And that is, well actually it's all black colour now, that is the silver coming out of solutions. So that's particles of silver. Silver and it will start to coat the inside of the bauble. What's actually going on in so, there to make the, the silver come out and stick to the glass? This is a reaction called Tollens reagent. We use it actually in chemistry labs for figuring out whether compounds have aldehydes, a particular type of chemical in it, because this reaction only works with aldehydes. When we react the ammonium silver complex with an aldehyde, which you get in these sugars, it produces, it causes the silver to come out of solution. So um, It's just convenient that it does that and sticks to the glass. Yeah. So it's, we use it as an analytical tool in chemistry. It's also long been used to make silvered mirrors and silvered baubles. Fantastic. Well, what else have you got for us? What's Christmas dinner without... Crackers. I never win at crackers. There we and go. I did this time. So what did I get? That bang. I got a notebook. Oh, that's a really good gift. That that crack from the cracker and also party poppers. There we go. That <laughs> is a hey, is a, uh, is a small explosion from a well a very 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 unstable compound called silver fulminate. It's so unstable that if you make more than a few hundred milligrams of the stuff, it actually explodes under its own weight. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So how so, do they make it then? It's really quite easy to make, but you just don't ever make much of it. Okay, so the same, you get the same stuff in, in you know, the bang snaps, you throw at the yeah. ground, etc. But it's, yeah, it's incredibly, incredibly unstable. But what's actually happening in the party popper, when I pull the string or in the cracker, when you pull that piece of brown card and the two ends come away, what's happening? So you've got about, I think it's about 50 milligrams of silver fulminate in a cracker like this, so a tiny amount. And it's painted on one side of the strip. And then on the other side, you have a bit of abrasive oh, sandpaper. sandpaper, basically. Right. And when you pull them apart, that friction is enough to set off the silver fulminate. And the other neat thing you can do with these is if you put it in a candle flame... You're bit, holding the snapper bit out yeah. of the cracker yeah. into In the a candle flame. flame, right? When it goes off, it puts out the flame. Yes, and you see that? has now gone out. Right, it has, it, because the explosion is actually that vigorous that it essentially blows out the flame. And of course, the other reason for that is that the explosion produces 
nitrogen and carbon dioxide. Um, which, which doesn't burn. Which doesn't burn. So there you go. You've got a really... So there's your answer. If you set fire to your house doing your flamethrower experiment, you can put it out by throwing in a huge box of crackers. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to work. Um, I mean, if you enough enough silver fulminate to uh, to put out the fire would also take down your house quite easily. Right. Well, obviously, no Christmas table is complete without the cake. No. So uh, what can you what can you do with Christmas? Well, cake? well, there's a bit of chemistry that, of course, goes on all the time when you're uh, baking. Actually, there's loads of chemistry that goes on in um, in baking and cooking. And one of the simplest ones to show is a quick demo with sodium bicarbonate. And you probably you've tried this sort of thing at school when making volcanoes. The bicarbonate in your cakes is there, so when it heats up, it liberates carbon dioxide, which is what the bubbles are so in the cake. So the bicarbonate breaks down yeah. and makes some carbon dioxide. Exactly. And what that, that literally inflates the cake. Exactly. Blow, yes, right. blows okay. up your cake, but a lot slower than the formulate. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you can do the same thing if you just add vinegar to so bicarb. We've got a spoonful of bicarb in a glass jar here on the table, and yeah. in goes some white wine vinegar, and it's frothing up. Exactly. Yeah, any, any, well, any vinegar you like. You don't need to use... So you could use heat, but you're using vinegar. Um, you, What's yeah. going on? So again, the um, the bicarbonate, uh, same sort of thing is go that's going on when you're in your cakes, except the, in this case we are um, the the acid is reacting with the bicarbonate to produce carbon dioxide gas as well. Mark, it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much. And I noticed I, I'm holding our homemade bauble, and it's fantastic. Yeah. It has completely silvered yeah. and covered the inside of the flask. It does look really rather good. Can yeah. I have this for my Christmas tree? You may, of course. They're quite heavy, but yeah, put stick a bit of thread through the, the cliff on the top there and hang that on your Christmas tree. A proper chemist's Christmas tree. I have a reaction vessel fact, to hang on my tree. In fact, it will probably be, then be a chemist tree. It could indeed. Mark Lorch from the University of Hull, thank you very much. But before you go, look, I'm going to make you pull another cracker. Absolutely. Okay. Let's see what the joke is that Mark has got. Right, this is a goodie. What kind of motorbike does Santa ride? I will let you think about that one. But before that, let's hear more from the Templar scholars. In dolce jubilo, let us a homage show. A heart's joy reclined in presepio. And like a bright star shined, Matris in Gremio, Alpha Zeto, Alpha Zeto. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with your seasonal stories, then you can email me. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. Still to come, we'll be hearing from Ophelia DeRoy on how to create the perfect Christmas dinner, plus Roger Corder on why wine really is good for your health. So what was the answer to that Christmas joke, Mark? Go on, read it out again. So we wanted to know what kind of motorbike does Santa ride? And the answer is, of course, a Holly Davidson. Yeah. Let's get serious about these cracker jokes because crackers go back to the mid-19th century when a London confectioner called Tom Smith began by adding love messages to the wrappers of his bonbon sweets. And as the years wore on, mini fireworks, mottos, trinkets and finally cheesy jokes were added to the mix. Now these can occasionally be funny, so we better explore the psychology of human laughter. Elena Hoykers from the University of Sheffield and her work actually focuses on how children understand jokes. When do we begin to find things funny? 
babies actually start laughing as early as three to four months, but not necessarily at jokes. So they might laugh spontaneously or if someone tickles them. But even in the first year, babies do start to understand things that are funny. So in one study, they found that if mothers did things like put a sock in their mouth, babies around 10 months would start to laugh at this. Why is putting a sock in your mouth yeah. funny? Basically, I think what a lot of cognitive psychologists would agree is that humor involves something that's unexpected, out of the ordinary. And so putting a sock in your mouth, that's kind of strange. So you might laugh at that because it seems kind of strange and, and you can take joy from that. And even though jokes get more complicated, this kind of unexpectedness is usually at the heart of most jokes. And if I were to look inside my brain when I'm laughing at something, when I'm, I'm being tickled, by something, whether it's one of those rubbish jokes I told earlier or, or actually something genuinely funny. What actually is happening in my brain to make me titter? So what happens is there's activation in the dopamine area of your brain. And, and when I say dopamine, this is an area that can make you feel good. Other areas in your brain can activate too, depending on the kind of joke. So if it's a kind of joke where it might be about understanding um, human interactions, then areas of the brain to do with things like understanding how people think, social cognition, those brain areas will activate as but well. But there are different types of things that are funny, aren't there? Yes. There, there is the literally putting the sock in your mouth and yep. laughing at that because it's a bit unusual. But then there are clever plays on words, yeah. which they're, they're not visual, but they're crafty plays on words, and they're funny in their own way, aren't they? Is it then that, you, that laughter is like a final common pathway and there are different ways to activate that? So I think kind of coming back to this idea that something's funny if it's unexpected, um, it really captures both of those types of jokes. So like a funny cracker joke would right. actually be funny because it's unexpected. Exactly. So often the punchline of a cracker joke, it just sounds kind of weird when you first hear it. When you think of the second meaning, then it starts to make sense. And so you see, hear something unexpected and then you kind of solve that problem. And so it makes you feel good um, and it's enjoyable and you find it funny. What about going back to your research on age, how kids learn from an early age to find things funny or develop humour? And does everyone develop the same sense of humour? Does it matter whether you're living on one side of the world speaking one language or living on this side of the world speaking English? Do you find the same sorts of things funny? I suspect initially babies will find the same types of things funny, such as, you know, blowing raspberries or hearing strange sounds. But parents play a really big role in development of their children's humor. So even in the first year, parents will they'll clown around, they'll make silly faces. And at three months, babies don't really get it. They don't seem to laugh or smile in response to the parents' behaviors. But by six months, they do. So it seems like they're starting to learn what's funny. And in my own research, we found that even by 18 to 24 months, Parents, um, when they tell a joke, they essentially explain it. So I think they might be a bit afraid the kids don't get it or they might learn the information and think it's true. So if they say something like, ducks say moo, they'll often then follow that up with, ducks don't say moo, what do ducks really say, and really make sure their kids understand it was a joke, why it was a joke, and so on. So in terms of different um, types of jokes in different parts of the world, you know, the styles of jokes might be similar. You have wordplay all over the world, for instance, but the content might be different. So depending on your cultural values, you might find different things funny. So, you know, maybe a capitalist society would find some notion of communism funny and a communist society would find some notion of capitalism funny. And that's really going to be about your culture, although the format of the joke might be similar. Can we try it? If I give you some kids, do you want to have a go and, uh, and see if... Uh some of your predictions are right because I've got some kids on tap actually I'm going to lend you my children so w what would you like to start with a younger one or an older one um we could start with a younger one and see okay. how it goes yeah well this is Tim so what uh, he's six so what would you expect his humor capacity to be 
Um, certainly from two years up until about seven, children really appreciate the nonsense of humor. So they might not understand puns as puns, but they might find a pun funny just because it sounds kind of crazy and weird. So with the kind of Christmas cracker jokes, he might find them funny, but maybe for a different reason to why an adult would find it funny. Okay, let's give it a go. So what's the loudest thing Santa eats? I don't know. Christmas crackers. <laughs> so he's actually laughing. Yes. Now, now it, why is that funny? Because it is. <laughs> <laughs> and I so, think... so he can't explain yeah. why he laughed. Did he laugh because we laughed? That's possible. And research finds that as kids get older, they're usually better explaining the jokes. And certainly children, research finds, will laugh if other people laugh. But he may have also just found it funny that Santa would eat a Christmas cracker because it's not edible and it's paper and it's kind of strange. Okay, yeah. well, let's go up the scale a bit. So Amelia is eight. So what would you expect her to be able to grapple with, joke-wise? I think in this particular case, and with puns, she should probably, she might, she's kind of at the brink of understanding that there's maybe two meanings going on here. Okay, so let's stress test her then. What have we got for her? Why did the man get fired from the orange juice factory? I don't know. Because he couldn't concentrate. <laughs> I think that left, that left her kind of cold. <laughs> but, so we're all laughing, but do you have any idea why that's funny, Amelia? No. <laughs> Shall we try another one? <laughs> let's try another one. What do you call a cow that plays the guitar? I don't know. A musician. <laughs> well, that got a sort of vague titter. So why do you think that's funny, Amelia? Well, cows go moo, and if it's playing a, a guitar, it sounds like the musician sounds like musician, and it's funny because there's a cow. <laughs> so it's funny because it's a cow being a musician, but there's a play on the fact that the cow goes moo. Yeah, and so she got, does obviously get the joke. Yeah, there's a fantastic explanation as well. Um, so she, you could really hear from her explanation. She understood the two meanings to that word, to, and, and musician is kind of made up word. Um, I'm glad she explained it because I'm still grappling yeah. with it myself. <laughs> and it shows that she can uh, she can hold two ideas in her head at the same time. This is yeah. related to um, operational thinking, so it's kind of a stage in development when. You you know, it's not just in terms of humour, but also where you understand that maybe a tall, skinny glass of juice is this, actually contains the same amount as this short, fat glass of juice. Um, but some jokes are also very cultural, context-dependent. If I say to you, why does a Frenchman only have one egg for breakfast? Why? Because one's enough. Uh, okay, right? yeah. It depends on you having that knowledge yes. that an egg means yeah. that, But it's the same sort of mechanism. It sounds yes. like the word that you want. Yeah. So so for, for that for that one to work, if people don't know um, oeuf is egg in French, um, then, you know, if you didn't know that, you wouldn't quite get the joke. If you understand that, then actually there's a nice bilingual pun you've just done there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we brought that up because it gave me an opportunity to deploy that rather rubbish joke. <laughs> Last thing I want to ask you about, obviously it is Christmas, and in a minute we're going to be tasting some extremely fine wines. What about the business of when you get drunk, you find everything incredibly funny? Is that just because you find everything funny for some reason because it's disinhibiting bits of your brain or is, is it actually doing something else to you? I mean, obviously you're working so, on child psychology, yeah. so alcohol and, and jokes probably we don't got less to do with it. Together, but, um, so. but why do you think that might happen? Okay. So one possibility is that you are disinhibited. Um, you might just be jollier. You might laugh more when other people are. Another possibility could be that maybe it's kind of changing how you're interpreting unexpected things. And so instead of being grumpy about it or being concerned, you might enjoy it more. Elena, thank you very much. Before you go, we made Mark pull a cracker. Would you like to please... 
pull a joke out of the hat. Come on then, give us a parting jest joke. All right. What is Father Christmas's favorite band? I don't know. Santana. Oh. <laughs> You're listening to a special edition of The Naked Scientists recorded at our Christmas party. I'm Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch with your seasonal stories, then you can email me. It's chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also tweet at Naked Scientists or find us on Facebook. Now, every year there's a huge amount of pressure on the chef in the family to produce the perfect Christmas dinner. There's the airiest, crispiest potatoes smothered in goose fat to worry about, the thick but not lumpy consistency of the gravy, and let's not forget the pièce de la résistance, the turkey. The continuous basting, the stuffing, it's enough to make anyone go mad. However... Ophelia DeRoy at the Centre for the Study of Senses has been examining all of the elements that contribute to the diner's experience and how that can dramatically alter how nice or terrible you perceive the meal to be. Hello, Ophelia. Good to have you with us. What actually happens when we're tasting something? Taste interacts with a part of your olfactory system. So your nose. The, your nose. Volatile components rise up and reach the piriform cortex, which is the olfactory receptors. And this retronasal smell gets bound with the taste you're experiencing. I see. So I put something in my mouth. Yes, I get the sensation on my tongue, around my mouth, but there are other chemicals coming out of the food that go up the back of my throat, for want of a better phrase, and they're activating my smell system. But I don't regard them as a smell. I am regarding them as a taste. But actually, it's the whole thing mixed together. Yeah. We call this oral referral. So um, that's the, the sensation is not experienced at the place where you actually receive the stimulation. How can one exploit this in order to maximize the enjoyment of food? So because smell is involved in flavor experience, then you can understand why some of the expectations that you will have come from your sense of smell so when you enter a room and you have these delicious smells floating around then it's already the same component you will experience when you actually taste the food so the pleasure of anticipation is already at stake so keep the doors of the kitchen open we were hearing uh, just now from elena about how children learn to integrate information to make jokes funny because they can hold several things in their mind at once. Do you think the same applies then to flavours, that when you're experiencing a flavour, that actually because a flavour doesn't just come and go, actually it evolves in your mouth and you experience different things at different times? Do you think that actually is why adults are better at enjoying certain flavour experiences than kids would be because they've got to hold those experiences in their mind all at once? So there is probably less multisensory integration going on in the flavor system of children. But what is going on also when you're young is that you really want to keep track of what you're eating. Most children will want to have the vegetables not touching the meat. And what is going on is a sort of clever way of learning to connect what you experience in the mouth and the shape and the color of things. So that later you can actually now know how to mix them. But before that, you will keep them separate. What about other sorts of stimuli? What about sound as well, though? If I if I play certain music in a restaurant or if I eat an airline meal, do I experience the food differently if I'm on an aeroplane with all that noise going or the Indian restaurant playing that very Indian music? Do I get a better flavour experience? So this is part of a fascinating series of uh, research projects we've been uh, conducting. Um, and the fact that sounds actually affects your flavour experience. So it does? Uh, yeah, absolutely. In a, an aircraft, 
the sounds that you hear will actually lower your taste perception. Many people will order tomato juice in a plane, right? I do. <laughs> so, uh, when With vodka added. When yeah. <laughs> you would never have it maybe on the ground. And the reason is that tomato juice is very rich in umami. And whereas all your other tastes... Sort this of, is this very meaty flavor compound, isn't it? Yeah. All the other tastes are sort of become dull because of the, the background sound. But umami resists. Then if I fly business class and I get my noise-cancelling headphones on, is that, that going to mean the food tastes better, even though it might not be any different? The food will taste better because of this beautiful noise-cancelling headphones. But also so that's you true. Will, yeah, but you will have also heavier cutlery. And uh, that makes a difference. Absolutely, to the perception of creaminess. So you just have a way in which, because it feels heavier on your hand, then you will think, oh, it's because the stuff on the spoon is actually more dense. So when people say, look, drinking tea just doesn't taste right, or wine does not taste right out of a plastic cup and put it in a glass or put it in a mug and it tastes totally different. Same tea. That's purely a subjective biasing by the vessel you're drinking it out of. Because we are looking at the uh, complex enjoyment of the food, it will actually change people's overall perception. They will think that it's a more enjoyable experience and then they will refer it back to the wine and think it was a better wine. Okay, answer me this. What can we do about Brussels sprouts? universally loathed by some, loved by others. How do we turn them into everyone's favourite vegetable? Is it possible to play the same trick with Brussels? Yeah, um, some people might not like Brussels sprouts because they have more bitter receptors on the tongue. So for this part of the population, which we call uh, super tasters, maybe there's nothing to be done. But for other people, you might try changing the colour of the plate. With a blue plate, it will taste saltier. And with a red plate, you will bring the kind of sweeter flavours of the Brussels fried out. And if I want to max out on you know, people's enjoyment of my Christmas dinner, give us some tips then. What should we actually be doing to give people the best Christmas experience with their dinner? Well, probably taking a, a cooking class before will help. But well, That would uh, help, that's true. <laughs> the kind of research I've been involved in is looking at ways to improve your flavour experience without touching the food itself. So think about the visual appearance of the food. So if you add some colours, it will make you expect something more intense and it will make it taste more D intense. Does that actually get borne out? If you give people a more colourful meal than a more bland-looking meal, but it's the same stuff that tastes the same, do they say, wow, that tastes great versus this that tastes bland? Colour intensity can improve the perceived intensity of flavour, absolutely. Up to the point that if you give people just a little bit of red dye, lots of people will start saying, oh, it tastes of raspberry, although there is nothing but colour in it. Is it true someone did an experiment where they got a glass of white wine and they stained it to look like red wine and they took some identical wine without the stain in it and said to people, sample these two and people thought they were drinking red wine and white wine but in fact they were the same thing. Yeah, it's a, uh, an experiment which has been conducted by a enologist, uh, Denis wine, Bourdieu wine yeah, yeah. and Frédéric Brochet and they were trying to show how important vision is in generating expectations. Of course, what is tricky here uh, with wine is it's, it's a very social thing so people didn't want to look like fools and they probably reported 
kind of red fruit flavors because they didn't want to say something else. So it's something that we know as a huge influence, but there's something very complex going on with these wine examples. Uh, something you might be uh, looking at also is the candles you will light. Um, mm. Scented candles make a difference to how much people will enjoy the food, but also how strongly they will remember the meal. Probably the perfect meal is the most memorable one. So oh, think- indeed, because you want people to come back. So what can I do then to make people want to come back? Uh, well, give them good food, <laughs> good company, good jokes. But also, if you give them a, a smell that connects to their previous happy memories of Christmas, like uh, scented candles with pine tree or cinnamon, they are likely to connect this episode with their previous happy memories of Christmas and it will improve their experience. Do restaurateurs do that? Do they, do they by dishing up the peppermint at the end of the meal or, or something equivalent, is that their way of sending you home with a signature smell that reminds you of the wonderful occasion you've just enjoyed, so you are likely to go back. Absolutely. We have this example of Heston Blumenthal at the Fat Duck, who actually gives you a smell when you go out of the restaurant, which is the smell of a sweet shop, which connects you with childhood memories and makes this final touch when you go. It extends the memory of the wonderful meal you had. From the Centre for the Study of the Senses, Ophelia DeRoy, thank you very much for coming and helping us cook the perfect Christmas dinner. Thank you. Now, of course, it wouldn't be Christmas if we couldn't enjoy the odd tipple. But there are so many contradictory messages now about how much we should drink and what's good or what's bad for us. Roger Corda from Queen Mary University of London works on the health and benefits of wine and chocolate. So he should know what's good for us. Hello, Roger. Hello, Chris. Is there any evidence that wine really is good for us? Because there's a lot of hype, isn't there, about wine being good, wine being bad, X number of things a day reduces your risk of heart attack. Is this true? It's very clear that moderate drinking can be beneficial in terms of reducing heart disease. Good. So, <laughs> That's a relief. <laughs> for a man, that means two to three units of alcohol per day is sufficient to have a protective effect. As soon as you go over four or five units per day for a man, you start to have harmful effects. So the fact that the story is about benefits of wine and adverse effects of wine, it's all about what level of drinking people are undertaking. And what's also clear from my research is certain types of wine have greater benefits than others. So if you're in this window of moderation and you have a wine that's rich in tannins, then they can have an additional protective effect on your heart and therefore be beneficial to a greater degree than other, other alcohols, including white wine. So there is some chemical evidence and some chemical rationale for why wine should be good for me. It's not just that when you're relaxing with your friends, you're in convivial surroundings and enjoying the odd drink just happens to be going along with that, but it's the surroundings and the lifestyle that's better for you than the wine itself. There are enough studies to show that moderate drinking has a beneficial effect. However, that lifestyle factor is also important. Alcohol drunk with food is less harmful and therefore more beneficial than alcohol drunk without food. What about then if I had grape juice? Because wine at the end of the day is fermented grape juice, isn't it? If I compare 
grape juice with wine that it turns into, does grape juice have these benefits or is it exclusively the preserve of wine? Grape juice is a very high sugar drink, so excessive consumption of grape juice can also be harmful for you in the same way as excessive alcohol consumption can be harmful. What makes it the difference between uh, wine and grape juice is when you make wine, you ferment the juice with the pips and the skins, and with a red wine, you extract all the colour from the skin and the tannins from the pips, and it's these tannins that confer this extra beneficial effect over compared to other alcoholic drinks. What are they doing? What we know from a number of experimental studies is they protect the blood vessels in a way that you're less likely to develop the lesions that lead to heart disease. So those protective effects of great pip tannins can only therefore be achieved with a tannic wine. So modern style wines, which are often made without that long period of extraction to get all the tannins out of the pips, are actually not very different from a white wine in terms of the likely beneficial effect. So white wine doesn't really have a beneficial effect. Red wine might have a beneficial effect. and Red wine with lots of tannin in it and lots of, of what's in the skins, that should have the best effect. That's correct, yes. But does that go hand in hand with flavour though? Because obviously the one thing people are drinking when they're having a glass of wine is not they're not thinking first and foremost about their health. They're thinking, does this taste nice? To some extent, and that's because we've developed this habit of drinking wine without food. As soon as you have a tannic wine and combine it with food, then a lot of those tannins disappear in the background because they're masked by the foods you're eating while drinking the wine. Tannins are in tea as well, though, aren't they? So can't I just get the same benefit from having a cup of tea? The tannins in tea are slightly different from the tannins in wine. The tannins in tea are smaller molecules and actually more astringent than your grape pip tannins. And so there's not really a good comparison between tea and wine in terms of the likelihood of beneficial effects. Should we, should we have a go and just try some? and just Because um, I know you've got some bottles there and I'm getting thirsty, quite well, frankly. So w- w- what are you going to serve up first? W- what I've got here first is a Pinot Noir wine. Now, Pinot Noir wines are actually tend to be made in a very light style because people are looking for the fruit flavours with a Pinot Noir. And actually, when you look at this wine... There's not much colour to it either. No, it does. It looks like Ribena, really. It's very exactly. thin, isn't it? Yeah. This, this, to me, is very much a white wine pretending to be a red wine. But, both but this was not very expensive. This was about seven quid in the supermarket, so it doesn't smell too bad. A bit thin. It's actually... It, it feels very light in, in style. Mm. There's no tannins at all. There's a sort of fruity aftertaste, which is a, a mixture of cherry flavours and black, black fruit flavours, but really it's not much in terms, in terms of the wine Right, so structure. that one you're saying would be less good for our health. There's really little advantage of a wine like this compared to the sort of modest health benefits you get with a white wine or in, indeed drinking small amounts of beer. So actually, you know, those type of drinks should equate to exactly the same effect. Okay, so this one... This is the big daddy of this, the tannins. This, this is the big daddy of the tannin-rich wines. This is a Sagrantino di Montefalco wine from Umbria in Italy. Now, Sagrantino grapes yield the, the most tannin-rich wines you can find in the world. Um, well, it's got a very big flavour. It's very broad. It's actually quite sharp. It's not a smooth... It's, it's a bit sharp, isn't it? But it's, it's but a, got you, a lovely flavour. 
What you notice very strongly is the aftertaste of tannins in the, these wines. It's, it's quite bitter afterwards, isn't that's it? That's right. Mm. But that bitterness would disappear if you had some food with it. You wouldn't notice it. But it's these tannin-rich wines that are the most protective when it comes to if you think that red wine is good for you, moderation is important, but then have a tannin-rich wine. We've talked a lot about how the wines contain these tannins and how they correlate with good health, but biochemically, when I drink this and it goes into my bloodstream, what actually is it doing to protect my heart and brain? All of your blood vessels have a lining, which is called the endothelium. It's a single-cell layer, and it, it produces a gas called nitric oxide and a vasodilator called prostacyclin. This opens blood vessels up, this doesn't it? This opens up your blood vessels, and it stops your platelets being sticky. So by preventing your platelets from being sticky, your blood is less likely to clot. But, Roger, how much of this would I need to drink in order to get those beneficial effects at a clinically relevant level, in other words, a level that will affect my health outcome? And would I have to drink so much of this wine that effectively I'd have to be an alcoholic with a liver problem before I actually protect my heart? This type of wine will typically have about 5 grams per litre of, of total polyphenols. And these are all the natural chemicals that come out of the skin and, and the pips that give you the tannins. Now, the, the grape tannins would have about 2 grams per litre. Now, that means that if you drink a third of a bottle, you'll be consuming somewhere in the order of 700 milligrams of flavanols. And we know from other experimental work that 700 milligrams of flavanols, you're really in the sweet spot of protecting your blood vessel from heart disease. On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love sent to me Twelve long equations, eleven spaceships launching Ten Stephen Hawkins, nine Stegosaurus Eight quarks are quarking, seven lasers beaming Six supernovas, DNA Microscopes, three test tubes, two chromosomes, and a partridge in a petri dish. Well, let's polish off our Christmas dinner with a look at some chocolate, because you can't have Christmas without chocolate. And this also has a lot of claims made about the health benefits, doesn't it? Are they grounded in good scientific fact? There is a health claim for dark chocolate. The health claim is that if you consume 200 milligrams of cocoa flavanols per day, then that will maintain the health of your blood vessels in exactly the same way we're talking about grape pip tannins protecting your blood vessels. Unfortunately, most dark chocolate doesn't contain 200 milligrams per flavanols in a suitable amount to eat without you getting overweight. Why is that? Cocoa levels, or the percent cocoa solids, is incredibly misleading because it has no bearing on flavanol content. You well, what do they put in instead, then? If it's not cocoa with flavonoids, what, what are they putting in? There's two elements to chocolate. There's the cocoa mass, and the way the cocoa mass is manufactured, if you ferment it for a long time and it gets really hot, you destroy the flavanols in the chocolate. The other thing is you can take a cocoa mass and then dilute it with cocoa butter and you can still call the cocoa butter percent cocoa solids. So you can look at a, a bar like a, the one I have here that's marked 85% organic and you're thinking, hey, that's a great bar, it must be good for me. But it's got cocoa mass and then cocoa butter as the cocoa solids. Can we actually tell if we taste some? Can, I think, can you spot I, I think the difference? You, I think you're going to tell as we move up the scale. So... I'm going to start you off with this 85% and not very good. 
and, and it's smooth because of the cocoa butter and a low, low flavanol cocoa mass. Okay, and what's the last one? Well, the last one, this is an experimental chocolate. This is truly the healthiest of healthy chocolates. This is a 3% flavanol chocolate. So, Is this natural or would you, would this made to have th- extra? Th- this is made to preserve in the manufacturing process all the flavanols that are there in the cocoa bean to start oh, with. Oh, now that's nice. Mm. Now, that's nice because now we're back at 80%. So actually, this has got less cocoa solids than any of the other chocolates. Mm. But, but it's well, that has a funny aftertaste. That, the mm. aftertaste is, is the mm. cocoa flavanols. Right. I'm Which, not sure uh, I'm so keen on these cocoa flavanols. I think uh, I prefer uh, it's wine. A b- it's a bit like the aftertaste <laughs> of the tannic wine, though. You have to agree the similarity. And answer me this. If I've overdone it with the wine, will any of these things help to offset my hangover? Or is there anything I can do to prevent a hangover the obvious thing to avoid a hangover is not to drink too much but actually a bit late for that an old-fashioned way to try and get over a hangover was the hair of the dog yeah now so that, having another drink having another drink yeah. now does that work it doesn't work well and it's it's the first step towards alcohol dependency it works because actually in most alcoholic drinks there's what are called congeners and other substances which your body has more difficulty in metabolizing and typically in many alcoholic drinks there's a bit of methanol it's produced as part of the the fermentation process or the wine making process and what the hair of the dog does is actually stops the metabolism of of methanol because ethanol which is the alcohol that people are, are liking to drink is preventing it being broken down into formic acid and formic acid is a neurotoxin so the hair of the dog works by allowing you to get rid of the methanol in other ways without it being broken down to this harmful neurotoxin. So the best bet then is actually just to rehydrate and don't drink too much in the first place. Absolutely. I mean, that's the safest way to do it. Roger Corder and how we can avoid tomorrow's hangover. Thank you, Roger. That's it for this week's special edition of The Naked Scientist, recorded at our Christmas party and featuring music from the Templar Scholars. Thank you very much to Greer Jackson for production, as well as our studio guests, Roger Corder, Ophelia DeRoy, Elena Hoyker, Mark Lorch and Jude Brierton. Next time, join us when we take a look back at the best bits of 2014 on The Naked Scientist. You can expect the backstories, the funny bits and the stuff you didn't get to hear. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC, I'm Chris Smith, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Good tidings, good tidings, good tidings we bring. 
We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Now bring us some picky pudding. Now bring us some picky pudding. Now bring us some picky pudding and bring Tom out here. Good tidings we bring to you and your kin. We wish you a Happy New Year. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.